Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. What would you do if someone stole from you? What if they took something really important, something precious? What if they betrayed you, hurt, or even killed someone you loved? What if you just didn't or couldn't trust authorities to do anything about it? It's 2023. Public and political institutions are crumbling. Many of you listening may not trust the powers that be, including police or the justice system. You might not trust the media for that matter. In the context of Whiskey Creek, this is significant. It's significant because it's possible those responsible for the massacre could have been meeting out a kind of vigilante justice. This bandit outlaw mindset is alive here. And it's not always clear who the bad guys are. One local business person I spoke with joked about how every second home in this area operates an illegal grow-up. He tells me this is one of the last places on the island to be zoned which means it has attracted a certain kind of personality. I gather he's talking about the kind of person who's anti-authority and perhaps doesn't have a lot of respect for the law. Many of the people I've spoken with believe the killings were payback, and the target was Sean McGrath. Scroll down the comment sections on Whiskey Creek Stories, and you will easily find this kind of sentiment. Good news for Vancouver Island. Sounds like they ripped off the wrong people. Can't say I'm too torn up if a couple of minor league gangster wannabes die of lead poisoning in a gravel pit somewhere. Better than the drive-by and public shootings that put the rest of us at risk. But there is no agreement on what exactly McGrath might have done to draw this extreme response. My gut tells me this is likely over drugs or money or both. But I'm not ruling out other possibilities. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Whiskey Creek, Island Crime Season 5. Racing to catch a ferry is an experience most islanders can relate to. Early Saturday morning, October 10, 2020, a 55-year-old man from a small village on the northern half of Vancouver Island is on the road heading south. The driver is behind the wheel of his Chevy truck. It's Canada's Thanksgiving weekend, and he has a long trip ahead of him. He needs to catch a ferry to the mainland and then plans to drive to the Okanagan to spend the holiday weekend with family. Visibility isn't great. It's raining, 
and windy. Then suddenly, he hit something. It could be debris on the road. It could be a deer. He pulls over to the side of the highway. If he's struck a deer, he's thinking he will move it off the road. But it's dark, and he can't see anything. The man gets back into his car and carries on to the ferry. That night, he learns about a suspected hit and run. Police are asking the public to help locate a 1991 Chevrolet Suburban with damage on the driver's side and a bug screen. The driver feels horribly. He heads straight for the police. The man didn't hit a deer. He didn't run over some debris. He has struck a young woman. Police said the woman was found on the median of the four-lane highway. Kiana Hugh, 22, has been identified by friends as the victim in a hit-and-run on Highway 19 North near the Alberni Highway Interchange. Police are investigating the death. The victim was apparently crossing from the Coombs side to the Parksville side when she was hit just before 4 a.m. There is a pedestrian underpass nearby. I find a beautiful online tribute to the young woman. Kiana was born August 10, 1998. And there is this sweet note. Kiana was light in many lives. She was kind and she was a loving young lady. Kiana loved dance and theater. She loved her siblings, her friends, and her family. She was witty, smart, and beautiful. She was always making others laugh. May her soul rest and her spirit live long in all things beautiful. On that day, the highway closes for several hours as RCMP investigate the scene as a possible hit and run. There are a couple of stories in the local news about the incident, and then nothing. But Kiana Hughes' name surfaces once again a few weeks later. Czech News local reporter Sky Ryan makes the connection. In a tragic connection, 22-year-old Parksville woman Kiana Hugh, who was killed while walking on Highway 19 on October 10th, was friends with both Sean McGrath and his girlfriend and was known to visit the camps around here. That case is still being investigated by RCMP. It's a link that's also being made in various online forums. I would like to know if the girl they found on the highway was really a hit and run. She was friends with the victims? Who knows? I can't find any info on her. It says ongoing investigation. You might remember Kelly Morris from an earlier episode. She's the outreach worker I spoke with at the beginning of my research into Whiskey Creek. She also questions if the incident on the highway was truly a hit and run. That wasn't a hit and run. And one thing led to another. So, yeah. I'm not sure how that connects. But I know she spent a lot of time up at Whiskey Creek. There's just a lot of uncertainty there of what really happened. You know, Sean McGrath was the last one to see her. Kelly here is stating her opinion. I don't know on what basis she makes her claims about the circumstances around the hit and run. It was not a hit and run. He probably figured he hit a deer. It happened so quick. 
Mm -hmm. right? And it just happened over here. I've been there to put flowers in there too. But Kelly had met Kiana. She came from a home of addiction. A lot of people cared about her. You know, she would never hurt a fly, but she was really messed up. When I began my social media investigation, I see Kiana is Facebook friends with two of the Whiskey Creek victims, Sean McGrath and Shanda Atkinson. Sean's sister, Tina McGrath, posts a note of condolence on Kiana's passing. Kiana is also connecting online with the survivor. Now, this could be a coincidence. The island is small in many ways, and Kiana has almost a 1,000 Facebook friends at the time of her death. But the connections between Kiana and the Whiskey Creek victims, the circumstances of her own death in time and place, raise a possibility that there could be a link. So I asked those who know Kiana to speak with me about her in an attempt to learn what, if anything, this young woman's death has to do with Whiskey Creek. One of the first to respond is Kennedy. My name's Kennedy Crow. I'm 22 years old. I'm originally from Parksville. She considers Kiana one of her dearest friends. Growing up here on the island, she says they were thick as thieves. They knew each other from a young age through their teen years and had contact shortly before Kiana's death. So Kiana and I grew up together. So (laughs) I lived in an apartment complex. There was three buildings in the complex. I lived in one and then Kiana lived in the last one, the third one. And there was Kiana and there was a couple other girls. And I think we were probably around the age of, I want to say maybe like, seven to 12 was the age range of us girls and we all played together we you know spent a lot of time together for a number of years Kiana's grandmother lived in the apartment building and I believe Kiana was living with her at the time due to some things that were going on in her family Kiana it seems was a live wire Kiana was I don't want to use the word crazy. She was wild. Like, she was always running around. She was so funny. Like, I remember on numerous occasions, Kiana made me pee my pants laughing. Like, she was so funny. Daring. Like, we were kind of, I don't want to say bad kids, but we were definitely mischievous. And, like, we would get into things we weren't supposed to do and do things we weren't supposed to do. And Kiana was always right along with us. I've seen pictures of Kiana. She is petite, slim, pretty with long blonde hair. It doesn't surprise me when I learn she was a dancer. Oh yeah, she was, she could, she was very flexible. I remember she taught me this dance move, kind of like, I don't know the word to describe it, but she would get down on her hands and knees and throw her legs behind her body and do this kind of like, what's the word? Break dance move. And I just thought she was so cool for being able to do that. I didn't stop the whole day until I figured out how to do it myself. So she was quite flexible. And yeah, like I said, energetic. So dance was definitely the place for her. Lightning, it seems, struck twice in Kiana's young life. She is 14 the first time she is struck down by a vehicle. In a weird coincidence, the highway hit and run 
wasn't the first time Kiana was hit by a car. Okay, so I was in elementary school and right across the street, across the highway was a shell and she was crossing the road there at a shell and actually had been hit by a car while she was jaywalking. And I believe she wasn't hurt that bad. I think maybe a broken leg and she had some scarring on her legs. But so when I had heard that she was hit and run, I was just like, it was crazy to me because... Kiana was no stranger to, you know, being hit by a car before. Like a lot of young people, Kiana may have believed she was invincible. I remember when we were kids, we were in the same dance studio in Parksville and walking to our hip hop class. And Kiana was playing chicken in the middle of the road with vehicles oncoming. So I don't think that she had a sense of danger towards that. Kiana's friend is cautious as she talks about some of the challenges Kiana faced in her earlier years. Everybody knows everybody, so it's probably not a surprise if I say these things, but I just don't want to upset her family. Kiana had a pretty hard upbringing where, like, she lived with her grandmother when we were younger. So I know that Kiana bounced around from schools a lot. Kiana was definitely all over the place in terms of where she was living or staying. Later in her teens, Kennedy says Kiana was at times living with older men, established in the drug world. She was living in Arrington at some random old man's house. Before that, she was living at a different drug dealer's house down in Parksville, who was another older man. Like I said, she was all over the place, right? So when when you say an older man, you are much younger than I am. Are we talking 40 or do you mean older like 70? I'm talking like, well, when I was that age, I was, yeah, probably 14, 15, 16. They were probably in their 50s. Despite these hard times, or perhaps in some ways because of them, Kiana develops a strong character. Definitely, like, so much personality, so funny. Like, if there's anything I could say to describe Kiana, it was, like, yeah, just, just like, full of energy and fiercely loyal to the people she was friends with. Like, I remember on numerous occasions Kiana getting into fistfights with people who had disrespected her friends. Like, she was, yeah, fiercely loyal, for sure. Kennedy recalls the circumstances in which she last saw her friend. The last time I had saw Kiana, I was actually purchasing drugs off of her. I have no problem saying that. I am like an addict in recovery myself. I am sober now, but at the time I was using drugs and I knew I was visiting on the island in the summertime. This was like maybe two and a half years ago. I had purchased, contacted Kiana to buy drugs off her. And we chatted for a bit, and, you know, she, like, I was almost expecting to see her, like, decrepit and, like, withering away because I had known that she had been struggling with addiction issues herself. But she looked almost the same. Like, Hannah had this very, like, young face, like, and it was still the same face that I had remembered from years before that. So it was, it was nice to see that, but I wished we weren't having the interaction we were having, you know? Sometime in her teen years, Kiana had become involved in the drug scene. Yeah, she had been selling drugs for quite some time. We knew that she was using methamphetamines and heroin and 
And I was no stranger to that lifestyle. Like I wasn't using it myself at that time, but I I knew that people who were doing that were sleeping for days on end at times. Kennedy recalls the details of the last time they were together. Hannah came there, a, a man was driving her, not an old man, like probably someone a couple of years older than we were. I believe it was her boyfriend at the time. And yeah, they just drove in right outside the house. And I went outside and met them and went back inside. It was a, probably like a five minute interaction. I remember like talking to her and I was like, it's good to see you. I was like, you look really good. Like I remember saying that. And she was like, yeah, smiley, giggly, not really saying much. I'm sure she wanted to get out of there. She was selling drugs, so she probably didn't want to stay parked there for too long. She is heartbroken when she learns her friend has died at such a young age. But in some ways, she is unsurprised. It was bound to happen. It We weren't, not bound to happen specifically in her being hit and run, but bound that she was going to either die in this lifestyle she was living or something horrible, you know, besides death would happen to her because, uh, yeah, Kiana was living quite a dangerous lifestyle for some years. We were in disbelief like that it happened, but we were also in agreement that it was bound to happen. Today, Kennedy honors her friend's memory by working in harm reduction as a support worker and remembering the bright spark that was her friend. When I saw Kiana last, she still had that spark in her eye that she had when we were young, that little, that Kiana sparkle. I can't really explain it any other way, but people who knew her will understand what I'm saying when I say that. And I'm choosing to remember my friend who she, as she was when we were young girls. She keeps Kiana's celebration of life card close by. A reminder of her beautiful, funny, sparkling young friend's life. I keep I keep that on my window ledge to this day since I've gotten it in the mail. I have it there every day and probably will keep it with me for the rest of my life just because the picture on it is Kiana that I want to remember. Neither the RCMP nor the BC Coroner's Service will comment on Kiana's death. The brief response I get back from the coroner's office when I ask about Kiana Hugh and about the Whiskey Creek deaths is this. All four deaths are currently under open investigation. We do not speculate regarding timelines for investigations, as each is unique. But I'd expect that these will all remain open for some time yet. Kiana's mother, Angela Hugh, is a convicted drug trafficker. She is released from custody on compassionate grounds to deal with her daughter's affairs and was recently given a two-year federal penitentiary sentence. Justice Robin Baird had this to say at the time of sentencing. You strike me as being an intelligent, nice person, and I think brighter days are ahead for you if you can stay away from substances. Kiana's mother declined to speak with me. In a brief reply, she wrote that she believed her daughter's death was an accident and that her family would like privacy. Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. 
Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyse each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. Like most journalists, Sky Ryan has a messy vehicle. I think uh, somebody should do a series of pictures of reporters' vehicles because they're all like this. <laughs> we live in them. You live in them, so right? Funny. Like there's, yeah, there's like pain relievers. There's yeah. <laughs> lights plugged into a battery because you live in your car. Like for example, there's forest fire ash in here. There's Tofino sand in here. There's like, you know, there's everything. We are heading into the site of the Whiskey Creek Massacre. I've driven in here a few times before on my own, but the site itself is no longer easy to access from the road, and I've had trouble locating it and getting in on my own. Today, Sky is driving. Just forgive me if I go a little bit slow because... I've left my Honda back at Bigfoot Burgers. And... I mean, you really have to look at it, right? Like, you're taking all this in as you're mentally driving out to a scene. You don't know what you're going to. And it's vandalism. It's trees chopped down. It's giant potholes in the road. It's gravel. So your body's sort of like already elevating. I remember coming out here for the first time. And you're going, what am I going to? When we pull over to the side of the dirt road, I can now see why I had trouble finding this spot. The path into the murder site no longer exists. So it looks like they've filled that road. I believe that's where I go in. We can walk up. Yeah, we're going to have to walk up. So we can I don't... park right here. Yeah, I'm just going to pull off the road a wee bit, though. Uh, just watch the ditch. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I Because I don't want to well. land in it. <laughs> so the first time I came here, Laura, I came... I was waiting out here for a couple of days doing my forest. And then they cleared the scene. Police took out a couple of, you know, uh, truckloads of... of clues and I thought well now they're out I'm going in and it was scary as F right it was you walk walk in well yeah and it's just me it's just me in a little car you'll get that Mm -hmm. feeling when you go down there Laura just wait on this day I'm out at the scene with local reporter Sky Ryan and outreach worker Kelly Morris Kelly has brought along a couple of friends too a retired police officer and a fellow peer support worker. We are an unlikely group, but there is comfort in numbers. Of the victim that actually died, let me go first, start where you guys are getting into. Well, you've been down here already. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Are you okay? Yeah, this is yeah. all disturbed world for intentional purposes. Yeah, the... They clearly would prefer people not come in here. Some big... And so we just climbed over. Yeah. But you're not going to be able to haul a trailer in or something. Exactly. You made sure no vehicles Yeah. So, Sky, could you um, describe where we're walking? <laughs> I don't know how to describe this. This is a road that's been intentionally tampered with to prevent people accessing it. So I'm going to spend 40 walks a couple hundred meters 
And there's already been about six disruptions in the road, which is large mounds of gravel, debris, trees. So they would have brought in some heavy equipment to do some big yeah. uh, ditches. To, or... to dissuade anybody moving back to the camp that had been occupied for I, at least since that summer. Sean McGrath had moved in that summer prior to the murder. Oh, we're not even done yet. There's still some more road disruptions up this one looks smaller. Yeah. They thought, well, no, we don't have to put that much effort into this one. So it's just below here. So it feels like we've come quite a ways in, but the traffic is quite loud. So well, we're, we're, we're... We're right next to the highway. We're so close to the highway. What he was doing in her. Okay. Nobody. So yeah, it's still here. It's right there. And I am getting goosebumps that tell me... Bad things happen here. It's a, a funny thing that you develop when you've reported on a lot of these murders. I don't know if it's the knowledge of what's happened, but oh, I wow. think it's something more than that. It's like an expedition. It, it is. So when I first came here, though, the first time I gained access to it, when RCMP had cleared it, this road was accessible. Um, similar type of coloring. Uh, dry that day, but still had had rain in previous days. Wow. They're really going to work here. Yeah. They really didn't want anybody to come in here, did they? You get that impression, hey? <laughs> so I would never have found this on my own. But I've come in with Sky and Kelly and a couple of their friends. And... We've just arrived at the spot out at Whiskey Creek, the clearing, where all of this terrible stuff happened just two years ago to this day. So I can see a burned out vehicle, a burned out trailer, I think, and you can see where the little fire pits were. I'm told there's a memorial down here to one of the victims, so I'll be looking for that as well. Well, when I came here for the first time, I drove in. There was Sean McGrath's camper was right here. All of his personal belongings were still inside. Like, um, we're seeing family photos, which was very disturbing. His dog's uh, cages were here or hens, um, but it's my understanding they were uh, on lead when they were shot, but they were right next to his trailer. I walked in because I thought, well, any details here are gonna lend something. And they hit the mattresses, the blankets, uh, empty whiskey bottles and beer bottles were in there. And then over here was another camper and weirdo as can be right over here was like somebody who took great care for what they lived at, like a trailer park or forgive me, like a, a retirement community mobile home park. She had a little stone garden and there were little statues of fairies and angels and... Here? Yeah. It, was, was that Shanda's place no, or no? Uh, I don't know whose was. Oh. Shanda lived with him in okay. that trailer. Oh, she did. So this was somebody this completely was somebody different. right here. Oh, okay. But it was right here. And there's a little fairy figurine. Stepping over lots of um, 
Shotgun shells. That's from the rifle. Hmm. Look at over here. You got pink and you got red. I don't know anything about shells. Do, does anyone know? Like, what are these? These are shotgun shells. They're shotgun shells. Yeah, and yeah. it's our understanding from what we've heard from RCMP that at least the victim who survived suffered a shotgun blast to the left side. So what we understand is that they were also shot. So we've kind of surmised that they were also shotgun shells. Um, but this wasn't clear. Today, evidence, at the so site of the Whiskey Creek Massacre, there are clues to what life might have been like for those who once called this property home. The trailers have been hauled away. Debris blankets the forest floor. Everything is burnt or rusted out. Propane tanks, husks of vehicles, coils from mattresses. There's quite literally a carpet of spent shell cases, various different sizes. There's a lot of shooting going on out here. Beer cans, Lucky Lager, the Vancouver Island favorite. There's a remnant of a naloxone kit amongst the rubble, a sign someone was just trying to hang on. But perhaps more disturbing are the remains of the lives once lived. Every few steps, you find evidence of the people who likely took their last breaths here. There's a woman's tall black high-heeled boot, a bright pink brush, a small blue and green plastic toy, an Easter egg for a hunt. There's a tin of artichokes. I've also looked at the aerial footage gathered by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation at the time the murder scene was under investigation. You can see a white pop-up canopy near the entrance to the site. There are two burned out trailers side by side and one trailer still intact. White sheets cover the bodies providing some dignity for the dead. In talking to Kennedy and reaching out to people who might have known Kiana, I'm trying to understand just what is happening out at Whiskey Creek in the period leading up to the Halloween night massacre. If this was a targeted hit, as the police believe, what is the motive? What does the evidence tell us about why someone wanted these people dead? The RCMP aren't talking. Same goes for the coroners. So instead, I turned to Gary Rogers. I have no idea how many deaths I've been to, and I got really adept at, and, and, and I was shown that I could handle the, the, the death scenes. Some people can't do that. They just, just can't deal with a human death. Whereas, uh, I found it fascinating. Gary is a former RCMP serious crimes detective. And he was also a coroner. You contacted an old cop who's got like 35 years of investigation experience between the police and the coroner service. So I, uh, I got my way of finding things out. These days, he writes thrillers and consults on movies, among other things. I want to wrap my head around how the police are approaching this case. And understanding the challenges facing the coroners would be helpful too. Gary can help on both counts. He knows the basics of the case. I know the location. I know it's unsolved. and They probably have a very good idea who's behind it. And he has questions. Lots of questions. What type of a weapon? Where's the guy that's wounded? The guy that survived and was shot, what, is, what does he say? Is he in protective custody? Before we dig into the case, he explains a couple of models he has found helpful in the past. Are you aware of what Occam's razor is? 
Occam's razor just simply says when you're faced with two competing hypotheses, the simplest one is usually the correct one. There's another one that they follow. The weirder the situation, the closer the answer is to home. So I would say in, in here, the simplest explanation is that McGrath and, and the girlfriend were targeted for some very serious retaliation. And that's to take their lives, not just to send a message. Gary Rogers has been on scenes like this many times over his long career as an RCMP officer, then coroner. Here's what he says the coroner's role would have been out here. The first thing you're going to do is when you're notified about it, and it's an indication of foul play, it says, okay, guys, that's to the, to the police, who's ever generally the lead investigator. You've got my permission to do whatever you can in there. But when it comes to removing the body, let me know. So you're not going to go into that scene until the bodies are ready to be removed. You have no need to be in there. They are collecting all the evidence. So they take precedent in a, in a foul play case on, uh, on a death. Yeah, it's called in situ, in, in situation. Yeah, they, they, they wouldn't be moving the body in, until the last, until the entire scene, you know, until they've captured as much evidence as they can at the scene before touching the bodies. He explains that while investigators are on the scene, the coroner will be taking steps to get the next stage underway. What you would do then is be making arrangements for the, the body collection transfer and the forensic pathology, the autopsy to be done. In, in a homicide scene as a coroner, I wouldn't even do an, an on-scene body examination. There's, there's, there's no need to. I grew up watching Quincy, an old TV show about a medical examiner. I had a notion that coroners could play a more investigatory role on scene. As a coroner, your only responsibility is handling of the bodies and arranging for the, the autopsies. So in, in the coroner's role is always just to find fact, not to find fault. So the coroner wouldn't get involved in the criminal end of the investigation, just handling bodies. In order to sum up your coroner's case, you have to come with a judgment eventually as to what happened. So you pretty much rely on what the police have found. Coroners, I'm told, are bound by an international structure for death investigations. By finding fact, you're trying to determine the number one, who the person was, when they died, where they died, how they died, and by what means they died. So there's two different ends to how the cause of death and by what means. Once the coroner has established who the identity of the person is, as much as they can as to when they died, where they died, how they died, and by what means, then they have to classify the death into one of five categories. A is, was it a natural event? B, was it an accidental death? C, was it a suicide death? D, was it a homicide death? Or the one that nobody ever likes to come up with, and that's E, is sometimes they're undetermined. You, you can't determine what happened. Keep in mind, coroners in this case have yet to release any information. They say that won't happen till the investigation concludes. The investigators have declined my repeated requests for interviews. There are no updates given to local media, and of course, the families are also waiting. Today, the investigative work has likely moved to what former RCMP officer Gary Rogers describes as human intelligence. The crime scene and, and whatever key fact evidence is, is long retained and, and secured. So there's nothing really you're doing on following up on, on crime scene stuff at this point, unless you've, you're still looking for the murder weapon. You'd be trying to get human intelligence. You're phoning around trying to find somebody that's going to talk. 
Like there will be have been a lot of investigation time put into this. That can be anything from electronic surveillance, which is bugs and wiretaps. It's also trying to get to what we would call roll a witness, like somebody in here needs to be rolled. That means that they've got to turn them into an informant. So they're going to be approaching the targets who they suspect that they just don't have enough goods to be able to charge them. So they're going to be coming at them from a different angle. It could be an undercover operation. It's been some of those go on for a couple of years. It takes to establish a, um, a UC bond with uh, with a target. You have to get your undercover operator in beside the target. And it, sometimes it takes a long time in order to get that done. And they get very creative at how to, how to do that. This isn't Gary's case. He's not going to speculate on specific suspects. But based on his years of investigation, he offers some observations about a possible motive. I wouldn't even be able to count how many times I was involved in something that was a repercussion from the drug trade. This thing's too much within an inner circle to have the general population at any risk from it. It's a one-off event. Not like you got some crazed serial killer on the loose. Four people, three being killed and one being wounded, and then a, a fifth one linked to them being found dead under suspicious circumstances a, a couple of weeks earlier. Like this whole thing falls within a particular ring. The cops will have taken a good profile of everybody that is, is linked in around here and understand who's who and, and doing what. And chances are they've got one or two informants within that group that's keeping them in the know. Police are very protective about informants for a darn good reason. I tell him families are concerned that the police don't care about solving this case. The family members I've spoken with are concerned that the investigation into the Whiskey Creek murders isn't active or rigorous. They believe that's because McGrath was perceived as a troublemaker and that no one gives a damn if the Whiskey Creek murders remain unsolved. The families believe that's down to the fact that the victims in the Whiskey Creek killings were addicted to drugs, living on the margins, and involved with the criminal justice system. You see that kind of sentiment reflected in the online commentary surrounding the case. And as discussed earlier, there's a sentiment, too, that perhaps McGrath and the other victims got exactly what was coming to them. Now, that's a perception that Gary Rogers just does not share. He tells me it's not the mindset of a murder cop, that you wouldn't be part of a homicide squad if that was your attitude. No, I don't buy into that whatsoever. Mm-mm, no way. A murder case is a murder case, no matter who's the the, uh, the victim and who's behind it. They're going to put as much work into that as if the, you know some community leader got whacked. No, I don't believe for a second that any of the police agencies that, that I've ever dealt with would ever say, well, they had it coming to him, so we're not going to bother investigating. No way. If Gary Rogers is correct, the fact that there remains so much secrecy, the fact that we aren't getting updates from the police, could mean they are deep into an investigation that involves informants or undercover operatives. It could also mean whomever committed the Whiskey Creek Massacre will get away with murder. There's a talk that I give to uh, to writers groups. Uh, it's called How to Get Away with Murder. 
simplify this in that there's only four ways you can possibly get caught for and get convicted on a crime. One is that you leave evidence behind at the scene, such as, you know, the shell casings and link it back to your, your weapon that's still in your possession, or fingerprints or footprints or DNA or something like that. So you have to have a physical nexus connection between the perpetrator and the crime scene. Secondly, it's taking something with you, such as, you know, you rob somebody and you've got their wallet with their ID in, or you've got biological evidence from the crime scene on you, or something like that. So you need, that's in the physical end of it. Then third, there has to be a witness to it of some form. Now that can be a human witness or an electronic witness or from an eyewitness down to an electronic connection, or today video surveillance, because cameras are all over the place. So so you need a witness to, to have placed the person um, at the scene. And then the fourth is a confession. So, you know, and that's not necessarily to the police, but it could be to somebody else that they've admitted doing the crime. And then that person talks, can be caught on a wiretap, can be caught through an undercover operation, or a person just simply breaks down and confesses. So if they don't do one of those four things, then there's no way you can be charged. It's just that simple. And I wonder if there isn't also a fifth criteria he should add to his list. Kill someone everyone thinks had it coming. I finally managed to speak with Sean McGrath's father. And what I'm hearing from him is making me rethink everything I've been told about Whiskey Creek. If you have information about the Whiskey Creek murders, please call the Vancouver Island Integrated Major Crime Unit's tip and information line at 250-380-6211. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Whiskey Creek, Island Crime, Season 5. My wristwatch is broken. My shoes are untied. Time is a ticking, and so is the tide. But I am not worrying. Things are what they are. Come rain or come shine or a shooting star. I've been to the south, then to the north, east and the west, the middle of course. I may have been astray, but I've never been lost, never been beat by the road I've crossed. I guess I've been lucky. To some degree For someone Who ate all the fruit From the tree The stars been aligned And my goose hanging high I'll be okay In the sweet by and by I was born at morning On the first day
Hey, it's Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. I'm here to tell you how to get ad-free content and early access to episodes right now. All you need to do is subscribe to Island Crime Plus on Apple Podcasts. When you subscribe, you get to be first to hear new episodes, all ad-free. Pop down into the show notes for a direct link to subscribe. If you like Island Crime, you'll love Island Crime Plus. 